Crossway Church Sermon Audio. When I was 14 years old, my family moved back to Iowa. So I was, I was born in Iowa, lived there a few years, moved to Colorado. We were there about 10 years, and we came back to Iowa right before my freshman year of high school. I was a good bit smaller then, so I was about 5'4 and 120 pounds. And uh, so, I, but I was one of the new kids at school, it was a very small school. Uh, I know the Landises have been to Buffalo Center, Iowa. Probably no one else has. Uh, it, it is 850 people surrounded by corn. Uh, and so being the, one of the new guys at school, uh, one of my classmates decided that he didn't like me, inexplicably, because I'm a very likable guy. <laughs> but, but for whatever reason, he decided he didn't like me, and not only did he not like me, but he set out to make my life a living hell. And so during my freshman year, he, I, I was the quarterback of the football team, he was the center, a little awkward. Uh, he, he would mock my voice. You know, voice cracks and you're a young man, and he would mock my voice when I'm calling plays or doing the, the count. When, when he saw me walking through the halls, he'd try to trip me or knock books out of my hands. He, when we would go to basketball games, he would sit behind me and flick my head, right? Guys would gather at the park to play basketball, and somehow he would always end up guarding me, and he would just foul me relentlessly. One day, I was, I was at my locker in the hallway, and I'm putting books away, and someone taps me on my shoulder. I start to turn Before I even get turned around, he just cold cocks me right in the face. Right, uh, And I honestly, I don't know what I did to this guy, uh, but he seemed to hate me, and I certainly hated him. As this went on and on, there was a, a rage building within me. I don't, I don't think I ever did anything outwardly. I'm sure I probably called him some names, but outwardly it wasn't anything in his face, but inwardly. There was a volcano of rage in my heart. And it came to a head one day when we were down playing basketball, and I went up to shoot, and he kneed me in a sensitive place. And so I went home, and I had murderous thoughts in my head. I had murderous desires in my heart. I wanted to kill him. Seething rage. And, and there's not uh, really a satisfying uh, resolution to this story. I, I don't, I'm not sure why the bullying ended. I, uh, I grew seven inches the next year, and he didn't actually grow any more uh, the rest of his life, so I think that probably had something to do with it. But it, 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 never, it never really resolved. It just kind of tapered off. And I tell this story because I think it's a good illustration of one of the difficulties that we have when we think about our problems and our challenges in this world. And that's, it can be very difficult for us to identify, to be honest about the real problem. What is the Christian's greatest enemy in this life? Well, for that season of my life, this young man whose name was Ryan, it wasn't Ryan Miller, Ryan was my greatest enemy. I hated him. I was convinced that if Ryan would go out of the world, things would be much better. And that's what I most needed, is for him to go away. But how would you answer that question? What is the Christian's greatest enemy in this life? Well, you might think it's the devil, 
right? The Bible calls him our adversary. He's, he's entirely evil and he's entirely set against God and against God's people. Or you might think that our greatest enemy is the world, right? People like Ryan or, or systems and structures that oppress or, or uh, people like Hitler who are just bent on evil and domination, right? That, that wants to celebrate wickedness and crush what's good and true and beautiful. Of course, in some regard, those answers are true, right? The devil and the world are our enemies. According to Scripture, they are against us. They're against God. And so if we're with God, they're against us. But they're not our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy is never out there. Our greatest enemy is in here. Sin, right? That, that desire, that inclination that seeks to dethrone God so that we can enthrone ourselves in his place, that is our greatest enemy. And it's a deadly enemy. So if you look at Romans 8, look at verse 13. Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's a certain promise. You will die. Sin kills always. And so in meditating upon this verse, the, the Puritan John Owen famously distilled its essence into a very memorable phrase. He said, he wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That is the battle in the Christian life. So today we're continuing our sermon series that we've entitled Experience as we, as we consider what the Bible says about the nature and priority of biblical fellowship in the life of the church. And we looked in the first week at how our fellowship is founded upon Jesus. Jesus saves us and he unites us. And then we considered how our fellowship is gospel-centered, how, how the grace of God applied in our lives transforms us individually and as a local church. In the third week, we looked at the role of encouragement and how we seek to stir one another up to persevere in faith and to do good works. That as Christians, we should be quick to discern where one another and to encourage one another. And then last week, Doug showed us how the Holy Spirit works in the local church. He gives us gifts and he works to produce fruit in our lives that point to the work one another. So true Christian community is always a spiritual community. That's what's different about Christians being together versus anyone else being together. So today, we're going to focus on the mortification of sin, on, on putting sin to death. Sin is our greatest enemy. It's against God and it's against us. It entices us with promises of pleasure. No one ever sins because they have to. They sin because they want to. They sin because they want to be happy. But the path of sin is always the path to death and destruction and damnation. So this is a sober topic. It's, it's a deeply serious topic because we are talking about the destinies of eternal souls. Do we have something beyond this tangible material being? Yes, we have immaterial, immortal souls. What happens to our souls? 
Well, given the seriousness of our battle with sin, given what's at stake for us, what does the Lord call his people to do in this life? He calls us to pursue holiness within the community of the local church. That's our theme for today, pursue holiness within the community of the local church. In saving us, the Lord didn't save us into isolation, and he didn't save us into just a static state, an unchanging state. He saved us into his body, his family, church. And one of the great purposes of the local church is to pursue holiness together. That's part of what we should be doing as brothers and sisters in Christ, is pursuing holiness together. True Christians aren't satisfied with our spiritual progress in this age. Right? We should, we can, we should be aware. Where is God at work? Let me be encouraged where God is at work in my life. But those who understand sin and grace the best, who understand it the most deeply, understand how great the gap is between God's holiness and our holiness. And so we seek to put sin to death so that we can walk in righteousness and live for God's glory. So we're going to look at how to make progress in holiness today, and we're going to begin by seeking to rightly understand the problem, which is our first point, agree with God about your sin. The first thing you have to do is get the problem right before you start talking about the solution. So we have to agree with God about our sin. The first, and I think the chief difficulty we face in talking about sin comes to how we define it. Sin, by its very nature, is deceptive. And one of the main ways that we experience the deceiving effects of sin in our daily lives is this. We're we're often quite skilled and discerning and even tenacious in identifying the sins of others, especially the sins of others against us. But then we can be kind of ignorant and blind and apathetic to our own sins, you ever see that dynamic in your heart? It's why the wise parent never accepts the first part of the story of conflict between siblings, right? The, the first child comes up, mom, he hit me. And the wise and experienced mom says, okay, well, what did you do? Right? There's more to the story here. Well, I Legos and he had them all and he wasn't sharing, so I just took some, but he hit me and it really hurt. Right? And why that tale's coming out, the second child goes, mom, he took my Legos. Right? It's easy to identify in children because they're generally not very sophisticated in their sin. But this is a universal human dynamic, keen to the sins of others, dumb and blind to our own. That self-deceiving nature of sin is a large part of what makes our battle to mortify sin so very challenging. Think of it this way. If we always do what we most want to do, which we do, you always do what you most want to do, then is it really surprising that we always feel like we have good reason for our sin? We can justify why we sin. So the the teenager who screams at her parents and blames them for ruining her life knows on some level that her problem is not her parents. She knows on some level that her parents said no to her about this thing because they love her and want good for her. But she thinks this is happiness itself and my parents are in the way and so I am willing to blast them to try and get what I want. Or the man who sulks in angry self-pity 
and then says hateful things to his wife, he knows that his wife is not his true problem. But he's so disappointed by how she responded to him that he feels fully justified in letting her have it. You see, we can know that our sins are wrong. On some level, we recognize that our sins are wrong and yet make convincing arguments for why we should sin anyway. Yeah, I know this anger is probably a problem, but, but this is why it's so right and why it feels so good. To the sinful flesh, sinful deeds are always compelling. So if we're going to battle against sin rightly, if we're, if we're going to put sin to death, we must understand it from God's perspective. And, and while I can't do a full systematic theology of sin this morning, I do want to remind us of two very important doctrines that the church has used throughout the ages to help Christians to better understand the true nature of sin. And the, the first doctrine is original sin, which is the biblical teaching that when Adam ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, he not only rebelled against God individually himself, but he also pledged all, uh, plunged all of humanity into a fallen, sinful state. Adam had a very unique role in the history of mankind. And so when he sinned, it wasn't just for himself. It was for everyone downstream from him. That means that we are, every one of us, without exception, guilty in Adam. Without exception. It's very un-American, very undemocratic. When Adam sinned, you were guilty, and I was guilty. Our first father representatively plunged the whole of humanity into a sinful state that polluted us, it corrupted us, it, it twisted us, and it made us guilty before our Creator. So because of Adam, we're, we're born both guilty and corrupted. And you see that, Paul talked about that in Romans 5, especially in verse 12. And so one of the big implications of this for us is that we sin because we are sinners, not the other way around. Sin comes from us naturally. Not naturally as we were created, but naturally as we're fallen in Adam. It is not merely what we do, but apart from God's grace, sin it's who we are. And that brings us to the second important doctrine, which is total depravity. And that teaches us that sin extends to every part of us, body and soul. There's no part of us untainted by sin, which means we're entirely unable to do anything positive, entirely unable to save ourselves from our predicament. We're, we're entirely unable to contribute anything to our salvation. That's why when the Bible speaks about fallen humanity, it testifies none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. No one understands. That's in Romans 3, quoting, paraphrasing uh, Psalm 14. So I highlight these two doctrines because they're so contrary to how our world thinks about sin and so contrary to how we want to think about ourselves. The issue isn't whether or not you have an idea of sin. Everyone has an idea of sin. 
It's unavoidable. Everybody has a category of something or some things being wrong. Everyone's opposed to certain things. But, but the world wants to say that sin is found in things like your skin color or it's found in things like not celebrating sexual immorality, let alone condemning it, or, or it's found in your standing up for what God calls to be good and true and righteous, but what the world despises. It's not a question of whether or not we're going to make moral judgments. Everyone makes moral judgments. You hear that in politics, right? Don't legislate your morality. It, it's, it's, it's unavoidable. Everyone's legislating their morality all the time. That's the only kind of legislation there is. So, so it's not whether or not we're making moral judgments. It's what's our standard for those judgments. And then how do we think of ourselves in relation to that standard? God is the standard of righteousness, whether or not you want to admit it. Whether or not you want to recognize him as such, he is the standard of righteousness. And he reveals that standard to us in his word. So we have to be aware of the danger of a distorted definition of sin. Right? Just because the world says something is wrong doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. And just because the world says something's right doesn't mean it's good and right. Another great danger for us in thinking about sin tends to revolve around the question of our identity. So living in the world like we do, we've all been thoroughly catechized from our, our, our youngest age to believe that who you are, individually, who you are, is a question that only you can answer. That the path to happiness and authenticity is found looking inside yourself and determining all by your lonesome who you are and what will make you happy. And so the fruit of that is anyone who disagrees with you or opposes you getting what you want, what you're sure will make you happy, your enemy. Right? There's someone who is deeply wrong and morally deficient. You must oppose and fight against anyone who comes between you and your personal, personal fulfillment, the, the, the path, the desires, the identities, the, the um, education, the job, the relationships, whatever it is that you think will make you happy, anyone who stands in the way is your enemy. They're morally deficient. That's the essence of how the world thinks of identity. And it is a lie as old as the Garden of Eden itself. It's exactly what the serpent said to Eve. Of course, the problem is obvious. That idea of who we are and of what happiness is only works if we create ourselves. Right? If, you if you made yourself, you have the right to define who you are, and you have the right to determine your own happiness. But God made us. He's the one who created us, including things like our being male or female, and he's the one who calls us and tells us what is true and good and beautiful. He tells us this leads to life, and this leads to death, and don't go that way. And though he's not threatened by our feeble rebellion against him, he is gracious and loving. He does hold out his mercy and grace to rebellious sinners who, in humility, turn from the folly of their ways and throw themselves on his mercy. So what's the effect of wrong ideas about sin and how we live? Well, one significant fruit, I think, is that when we think about our own sins, we tend to think of them in isolation and as mistakes, right? Yeah, I guess I did that, but that's not who I really am. That, that's not what my heart is about, right? It's not who I truly are, am. It, it didn't come up from within me. Rosaria Butterfield has written a, an excellent little book called Openness Unhindered. In it, she writes, if sin is only about bad choice making, 
We don't need a savior. Right, if sin's just about your decisions in life, you don't need a savior, you need a life coach. You need a guru. You need a therapist, right? You might need electroshock therapy, who knows, right? But you just need something to jolt you out of your bad choices into better choices. But if sin isn't just a matter of the choices, but who you are, what you love at your core, then you need a savior. And that's the paradox here. We cannot experience Jesus as a savior if we won't first admit that we are sinners, that we're helpless to save and change ourselves. So we're gonna develop that more in a minute, but I wanna make sure that we're clear on this first. The fall of Adam produced a total corruption within us and a deep guilt for us before the Lord. And so if you're looking inside yourself to either define the problem, to find the solution, you will be stuck in the most brutal, ineffective, and ultimately destructive cycle that you could imagine. We don't look within ourselves to find anything good. To quote Butterfield again, Adam's fall rendered my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue. Adam's fall rendered my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue. Could there be a more countercultural idea than that today? I don't know if you are aware of her story at all, but she's writing that in the context of becoming a Christian. And, and as she, uh, through God's providence, began to interact with some Christians and read the Bible and go to church, even though she didn't believe any of it, as the Bible, in her line, got bigger inside of me than I, her perspective on life changed. She began to understand how her unbelief and her lesbianism were expressions of rebellion against God. She had formerly celebrated those things. She saw them as good and life-giving and fulfilling. But as she read the Bible and she saw God's perspective on her and her life, she realized that her, her real problem was her pride and unbelief, right? Her interpretation of life began to change. That's what led her to say. Adam's fall rendered my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue. So looking inside yourself leads to death. So to begin to mortify sin, we have to agree with God on what the real problem is. We have to be willing to finally be fully honest, which means we have to be willing to call ourselves sinful rebels against a good and holy God. If we're going to pursue holiness within the community, local church, we have to agree with God what sin is. And then our second point, receive from God his gift of grace. So looking again at that passage that we began with, Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the flesh is our our sinful nature bent against God, constant rebellion against God, and its path always leads to death, Paul tells us. So how do we escape from this awful power? If our fallen nature is entirely sinful, and if we're powerless to save ourselves, powerless to contribute, powerless to overcome, what hope can we have? Well, we see it right here in the text. By the Spirit, we must put to death the deeds of the body so we can live. 
what I hope we're seeing is that if, if we want to understand God's grace rightly, we must first understand sin rightly. Many things are labeled as grace in our day, but not all of them are truly gracious. We can tend to think of grace as just a minimizing of consequences, right? Or we can think of grace as a lowering of standards. You don't, you don't have to be quite so good. Oh, that's, that's so gracious. But that's not biblical grace. Faulty views of sin inevitably produce distorted views of grace. And the irony is this the most against this biblical presentation of sin, the way the Bible talks about us, the way the Bible talks about you as a sinner to your core, guilty before God, out of wrath like the rest of mankind, right? A slave to sin, that description of sin. Those who resist it the most, they don't don't want to own their rebellion against God. They are cutting themselves off from truly understanding grace. They think grace means we shouldn't have to think or talk about sin much anymore. But it's actually when we agree with God the most, when we see ourselves accurately as truly and fully sinful apart from Him, it's only then that we're positioned to understand grace the best. Ill-defined and insubstantial understandings of sin produce a light and weak experience of and appreciation of and engagement with grace. Grace never minimizes our sins. Grace sees our sins accurately, labels them the way God labels them, and then it solves it completely. So how does grace solve the problem of sin? Well, to speak rightly about the grace of God, we have to distinguish between two different senses of is justifying grace, and the second is sanctifying grace. Romans 8.13 is dealing with the latter. It's dealing with sanctifying grace, and sanctifying grace is one of the main reasons that we have care groups here at Crossway. We want to seek to be a means of God's sanctifying grace in the lives of one another. But I want to set that to the side for a moment so we can look first at justifying grace. That is the biblical progression, justifying grace and then sanctifying grace. So justifying grace is that that miracle where God, we receive the grace, we receive the reward, we receive the fruits of what Jesus did on behalf of his people. So on the cross, the sins of his people were placed on Jesus and punished to the uttermost. The, The wrath of God was fully exhausted upon his son on the cross. And through that, he produced a full pardon for the sins of his people. And justifying grace isn't just removing wrath. It's not just taking care of our sin and guilt, but it also includes the whole record of Jesus's perfect obedience in his life as he obeyed his father all the way through the cross. That perfect record credited to us as perfect righteousness. And you see that idea in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The Father made the Son to be sin, who knew no sin. The Son had done no sin, and yet he bore our sin, so that, with the purpose that, with the result that, we could become the righteousness of God. So justifying grace is a gift that we receive through faith, through trusting what he says to us. Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins is fully pardoned and fully righteous. We've been brought from death to life. We've been united to Christ. We've been sealed with his spirit. We've been adopted into the family of God, and we actually have 
confidence before God. We can be confident before the holy God, not because of anything that we've done, but always and entirely because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Christians will live forever in the presence of our happy God, enjoying every blessing that he has to give us because Jesus saves sinners. And justifying grace makes that certain. But in this life, we still face a troubling reality. Jesus fully solved the problem of our sin. He defeated sin and death, but he doesn't eradicate sin in the lives of his people in this age. We will sin until the day Jesus returns or the day we die. That's the reality that theologians have termed indwelling sin, and that's what we're talking about mostly today. Indwelling sin is the reason that we need not only justifying grace, but also sanctifying grace. It's also the reason that the Christian life is fundamentally a fight. In fact, I think it's the reason that Christians are more aware of our sin and and more deeply engaged in a battle than unbelievers are. Because we've been made alive by the Spirit of God, as Doug was talking about last week. Our our attitudes and values, our, our appetites and desires, the things that are priorities to us, the way that we think about the world, the way that we think about ourselves and our hearts and God and ourselves in relation to Him, all of that has been transformed and is being transformed. And now we actually want to please and obey God, which means that we're even more aware of how we sin. We're more troubled by our failures and even discouraged at times with with the lack of progress, how we're falling short in what God calls us to do. Christians know that we're in a battle with sin every day for the rest of our lives. We've been awakened to the reality of sin in a way that an unbeliever hasn't. Unbelievers' sin, it might bother them a little bit, but they're not spiritually alive. They're not engaging with the Lord in the way that we are. Right? We've, been, we've been made aware of the glory of God. We've, our hearts have been transformed, so we're more deeply troubled by our sins. And we serve a God who is holy and calls his people to be holy. He has grace for us, and he never excuses our sins. To quote Butterfield again, she writes, God will justify us from our sins, but he will never justify the least sin in us. So what are we to do? If you've trusted in Christ, you've received a full pardon, you've received full righteousness in Him, how do you fight the remaining sin within you? What do you do when evil desires rise within your heart? Well, in many ways, it's the same thing that you did when you first came to to Christ. You turn to Him in faith and repentance. Again and again, every day, moment by moment, faith and repentance. Putting sin to death only happens by the grace of God. That's why Paul says we must, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. We have been designed for dependence on God, and we must look to Him for grace, the grace that we need in our battle with sin. John Owen again wrote, Mortification of any sin must be by a supply of grace. Of ourselves, we cannot do it. Is that your conviction? Do you realize that? Have you... Have you embraced that reality? Mortification of any sin must be by a supply of our grace. By yourself, of yourself, you cannot do it. Are you trying to sanctify yourself? Are you on a self-improvement program? What must we do when we're convicted of sin? We have to turn to the Lord in faith and repentance. 
We agree with God about our sins. We call them what they are. And then we call upon the name of the Lord. What we must not do is presume upon the grace of God. You can't bypass repentance to get to grace. You don't bypass repentance to get to grace. Faith and repentance are the threshold of grace. It's why there's a difference between admitting sin and confessing sin. Right? Admitting sin is dealing with sin from my perspective. Okay, I did that. I probably feel bad about it. I see some of the consequences of it. I'm mostly bothered by the consequences of it. And that's what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. But confession of sin comes as we focus on the Lord. And we recognize that our sins are fundamentally against Him. We, we sin because we, we have idols in our hearts that we think will satisfy us. They, we think they'll comfort us. They'll bring us pleasure. They'll remove our pain. They'll, they'll bring us to a, a happier place. And so we worship those idols. We give them what they crave. And in that process, we displace God as we serve other things. But faith and repentance are turning from that foolishness to the living God whose kindness, it's the kindness of God, that leads us to repentance. And so faith, faith and repentance, remember that all of God's promises are true. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And as we turn to him, we will experience his grace. He does not withhold his grace from those who seek it, right? This is one of the uh, most fearsome and awesome promises in the Bible. God is opposed to the proud. Isn't that fearsome? If you're proud and resistant to the Lord, if you won't humble yourself before him, he is opposed to you. He's your enemy. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who come open-handed. Lord, I, I got nothing here, right? I am the problem. Save me, cleanse me, forgive me, change me. He gives grace to the humble. As David wrote in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, and he means silent about his sins, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happened? And you forgave the iniquity of my sins. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sons. This, this is our daily Christian experience. As the Holy Spirit works in us, as he's changing our hearts, as he's conforming our affections to be more and more godly, we will be convicted of sin. We'll recognize where our, our perspectives, our values, our desires, our drives, the things that matter to us are off, where they're idolatrous, where they're self-serving. And as he does that, he will also lead us to faith and repentance. He'll lead us to, to recognize where we've rebelled against God and where we need to be forgiven and changed. He's fundamentally helping us to own our sins. Yeah, I did that. And I did that because I wanted to do that. And I did that because it seemed compelling to me. I'm that kind of sinner. And that's why I need a Savior. 
And so much of our sanctification, so much of our growth in holiness occurs in that process as we're convicted of our sins and we turn to the Lord and we realize, I'm not getting what I deserve. I was the enemy of God and he loved me in spite of what I deserved. And here I am again. Even though I've been saved, even though I've been uh, granted these amazing gifts from God, and still, still in my pride and selfishness, I, I go down the path, uh, no, I want to do this. I know God says that's right. I still want to do it. And as the Holy Spirit convicts us, and we recognize I'm getting undeserved love. I'm getting love I don't deserve. Right? And, and what do you do when you're loved in an undeserving way? You love the one who loves you. How can we not love a God who loves us against what we deserve? And the more we love the Lord, the more we will be like him. The more holy we will be. So we have a good father. We have a patient father. We have a holy father. He'll never excuse our sins. But he will forgive us. And he's at work to transform us more and more day by day into the image of his son. And we may not be able to discern much progress in a day or a week or a month. But over many months and years and decades, Christians should show evidence of growth in holiness. You should be more patient. You should be more loving, more humble, more content more committed to the good, more opposed to evil, more confident in the love of your God. And that growth comes as we apply the grace of the gospel to our lives day by day. So we're called to pursue holiness within the community of the local church. And now we turn to a very practical application of these truths. That's our third point. Pursue holiness in your fellowship. One of the main ways that we pursue holiness is in our fellowship. So what is the role of the church and of our fellowship with one another in our individual pursuits of holiness? We know that the Lord has given us the church to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the mission of the church. What's the church here for? To make disciples of Jesus Christ. And fundamentally, foundationally, that works through evangelism. Right, as sinners hear the bad news of their sin and their rebellion against God and the good news of everything that Jesus did to overcome that, to save those who don't deserve it, and they turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, They're, they become disciples. But what then? What, what do you do from there? What comes after you trust in Jesus? Well, one important thing that we do is fellowship together. Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been saved by grace. We'll live together forever in the new heavens and the new earth in the Lord's presence. And and in that place, there will be no sin. There'll be no sorrow. There'll be no shame. It will just be perfect holiness and joy and peace. But here in this day, even our fellowship is tainted by sin. We are saints by the grace of God. And we're sufferers in a fallen world but we're also still sinners. And and we need to apply the gospel skillfully and consistently and deeply to ourselves and to others so that we can all grow together in holiness. So part of what we need to do is adjust our expectations for Christian fellowship. You ought not to be surprised when people sin against you. Your every experience of fellowship will likely fall short of perfection. Far short of perfection. So just look around you. 
Do you see all the sinners? These are your options for fellowship. Just sinners, right? And then you should probably take out your phone and turn your camera around so you see the biggest sinner, right? That's the sinner that I want to talk to. Because the pursuit of holiness needs to arise from within us. The pursuit of holiness needs to be our personal conviction, born of the Holy Spirit, that produces personal initiative in pursuing Christian growth. So we're not trying to create a community of of sin hunters where we're just suspicious and we're going around looking to label everybody, oh, I saw that, that was, you know, that was a selfish attitude, you were so disrespectful. No, the fellowship of the local church must be a place where true grace is known and applied and where we, we seek to overlook sin wherever we can because as James tells us, we all stumble in many ways. But we must also remember that God's grace is a sanctifying grace. It's a holy-making grace. It's a grace that not only produces holy acts, it produces holy desires. And that's how God works. Uh, Philippians 2.13 tells us God's at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. He changes our hearts before he changes our actions. But if you don't want to be holy... If you don't have a desire for holiness, if you're not pursuing growth, if you're content, you're calling into question your profession of faith in Christ. Because if you've been made alive by the Holy Spirit, listen to that, what's his name? The Holy Spirit, you will want to be holy and you'll want to grow in holiness. So when we talk about mortifying sin, about putting sin to death, we're we're primarily emphasizing our own personal call from God to pursue holiness and then through that to to include our brothers and sisters in that pursuit. And we see it in verses like Hebrews 12, 4. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we should be, for example, confessing our sins to one another Not because we're priests who mediate each other's relationship to God, but because we're serious about pursuing holiness because we realize how very much is at stake. We realize the natural tendency and temptation to deceive ourselves, to think better of ourselves than we should, to to baptize our sinful desires with holy motives. We should be confessing our sins to one another because we know that, that these are our brothers and sisters who have experienced the grace of God and who want to extend that grace to us. Biblical fellowship is all about the pursuit of holiness. That's also why confession of sin in true Christian community is not embarrassing. Because if we've all agreed with God about our sinfulness, we have no ground to sit in judgment over others. There's no ground for self-righteousness for those who understand themselves biblically as sinners. Those who've tasted the grace of God the most will be the most excited when you confess your sins and are turning to God in faith and repentance. They won't shun you or look down on you. They will celebrate the work of God in your life. They'll rejoice that God's at work in your soul. And and Butterfield has stated it beautifully. She says, in a real Christian community, there is no shame in repentance. No shame in repentance. So part of how we show our faith in God and our grasp of the gospel is how we fellowship with one another. If you never confess your sins to others, 
If you're unwilling to be humble before others, to ask for your help in in turning the spotlight of God's word upon your soul, you are cutting yourself off from one of the main means of God's grace that he has given us in this life. If If you can't go to care group and say, my wife and I are in a conflict that we cannot resolve. I know she's wrong. I just don't know why, right? No, I need God's word to transform my perspective to rescue me from my selfishness, right? I need the wisdom that my brothers and sisters have to offer. I need their experiences of God's grace to to give them wisdom, to speak into my life, to ask discerning questions, to point me to compelling truth. You don't want to cut yourself off from this community of grace that God provides. The church is a holy community, and at least in several senses. First, we've received justifying grace by God, by Jesus Christ. We've been counted righteous in Christ. And second, as the Spirit's at work in us producing fruit, and all of the fruit of the Spirit is holy fruit. And then finally, in our pursuit of holiness together, right? We should all be pursuing Christ, pursuing godliness, pursuing Christ-likeness together as we encourage and rebuke and correct and exhort and comfort in all the one another language of Scripture. I'd like to ask Doug and the ushers to come forward and prepare for communion. My family's been here at Crossway for 18 years, and I can honestly say that I grew up in churches my whole life. Lori has the same testimony. I did not understand sin or grace biblically before we came here. And I don't say that to puff up our church. There's, there's plenty of other local churches that preach the gospel. But understanding sin and grace biblically has been transformative in my life. I, I was operating under understandings of sin that kept me from God's grace Understandings of sins that kept me from truly owning my rebellion against God. Understandings of sin that made it much easier for me to justify my sin. Because, well, yeah, I know, but don't you realize I had this unmet need, right? I had these things going on. But by God's grace, over the last 18 years, there's been a tremendous transformation in our perspective on life. In, in, in what we value and in, in how, what we prioritize and what we think about. And so much of that has come in biblical fellowship. It's come especially in, in relationship with Peter and Grace and with Doug and Brenda, right? But it's also come in hundreds and hundreds of interactions that we've had with you. Moments where we're in a class together, we're serving together, we're, we're, walk, you know, we're walking through the lobby. And because God's at work in you, Because you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. Because you have a God-fearing perspective on life. You speak truth. It it, it doesn't even necessarily need to be some teaching moment. It's just how Christians interact and fellowship with one another. Right? We've experienced the the grace of God in so many ways in our relationships, in the various care groups we've been in, when we served in children's ministry, and in interactions with youth games, all over the place. The grace of God all over the place. And that grace is making us holy. It is a sanctifying grace. Uh, You know, the the biblical paradox is in many ways I am more aware of my sin than ever. Because I'm more aware of the glory of God. But I am also 
more mature than I used to be. Right? God's been at work. It might be small progress, but it's progress. And that is the Christian life. And we've experienced it here, which is why we thank God for you. And it's why I'm calling you, don't cut yourself off from the people of God. Don't, don't keep your sins hidden. Don't withdraw like, oh, yeah, nobody's, nobody's ever gone through what I'm going through. Nobody knows what it's like. Or, or if people really knew the truth about me, they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to talk to me. They wouldn't want to be with me, right? No, Christians who understand sin want to deal with reality. They want to love you for who you really are, right? They, they want God's grace to meet you at the deepest, darkest moments of your life. They want to make sure that when you're suffering, you're not walking through it alone. They want to truly be your brother and sister. They want to be a means of God's grace to you. It's a very kind gift of God to be in a church where the gospel is preached and taught, where brothers and sisters are seeking to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. The Lord calls us to be holy. He calls us to identify and mortify and forsake sin so that we can bear fruit as his people, so we can love him and love one another. So once you step into the grace that the Lord holds out to you in your fellowship with one another. He calls us to pursue holiness within the community of the local church. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.